you, uh, <clears throat> you may not realize it, um, but there is a there's a method to my to my hymn uh, my hymn picking madness. Um, so so I try to match the theme of the hymns that we sing with the message of the sermon uh, that I'm going to be preaching as as much as possible. And I I keep a chart um, of when each song was sung and how often we've sung it. Additionally, um, Scripture tells us, both in Colossians and in the book of Ephesians, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And so I've been working to do my limited uh, ability part to introduce us to the singing of the psalms, which is, after all, uh, God's own inspired or God-breathed hymnal. I especially like to do this at Christmas time, because for most of us, there's, a, there's an anticipation in the air. We're counting down the days until Christmas. And the Christmas carols that we sing follow the same kind of pattern. I don't know if you noticed that even today. Um, Some of them recount, for example, the proclamations of the angels at his birth, like the first Noel, or angels we have heard on high. Others might picture a a scene of, of serenity and peace immediately after Christ's birth, like Away in a Manger or O Little Town of Bethlehem. One of my very favorite Christmas hymns, Christmas carols, is Joy to the World. I think it's the best one. Um, I generally save it to the very end of the Christmas season because it very much proclaims not just the birth of Jesus Christ, but it really proclaims and and anticipates his second coming as well, his righteous eternal rule. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love and wonders of his love. But there's some Christmas hymns that we sing early in the season, like today's, because their message is one of anticipation and hope. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. It's almost written from an Old Testament prophet point of view. Of course, we can sing this truthfully even in our day in New Testament times and in the church age because we are awaiting Christ's return. But imagine those who are are waiting for his first advent, his first Christmas. Now, this particular Christmas carol, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, has a rich history that we really, I think, should be aware of. I try to bring us a, a few illustrations from history so that we understand where the church has been. Because for centuries, this particular Christmas carol has been sung by Jesus Christ's church uh, throughout the world for centuries. In fact, this Christmas carol, this hymn, which was originally written in in Latin, is actually 1,200 or so years old. It goes back to monastic life in the 8th and 9th centuries A.D., And so somewhere around the year 800 A.D., monks, friars, living and studying in monasteries in Europe, for seven days before Christmas Eve, a week before Christmas Eve, they would sing what were known as the seven O antiphons. An antiphon is a a short sentence that is sung or, 
recited before or after a, a psalm or a, or a canticle. Usually it's a short piece of music sung either right before or between two other pieces of music. It's kind of the easiest way to think of it, especially if you don't know anything like, about music like me. So in these monasteries, each day in the week before Christmas Eve, the monks would sing a different O, letter O, O antiphon, in anticipation of Christmas Eve, when they would sing an eighth antiphon, which was called the O Virgo Virginum, which means O Virgin of Virgins, which would be sung before and after they would sing Mary's the Magnificat from uh, Luke chapter 1. But these O antiphons, which are sometimes called the Great O's, they were designated to they, really, what they were designed to, to concentrate the, the minds of worshipers on the, on the Christmas season, on, the, on the, true, uh, the true meaning of Christmas. They would draw on truths from both the Old and the New Testaments that looked forward to and, and explained the significance of, of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And so here's what they would sing. These, these great O's would be sung for centuries O Sapentia, it means O Wisdom. On day one, they would sing O Wisdom. On day two, they would sing O Adonai, the Hebrew name for God. On day three, they would sing O Radix Jesse, O Root of Jesse. Day four is O Clavis David, it means Key of David. And both Isaiah and Revelation tell us that, that Jesus holds the Key of David. On the fifth day, they would sing, O Orions, and Orions means day spring or, or dawn. O Rex Genitium means king of the Gentiles. And then on the 23rd of December, the day before Christmas Eve, they would sing, O Emmanuel, God with us. That final one, O Emmanuel, would traditionally be sung on that night in the evening before Christmas Eve, which was when the anticipation of the coming Messiah was at its peak in the hearts and minds of worshipers. Now, somewhere along the way, over the centuries, the verses that we sang earlier were assembled and and put down on paper, probably in France in in the 1500s. But when it was first translated into English in the 1800s, the first line of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, was actually, Draw nigh, draw nigh, Emmanuel. Here's why I'm telling you all of this. Because for centuries and in different languages, the church has cried out at Christmas time, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. And then we have encouraged and reminded each other to rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. In today's passage that we're going to look at in John chapter 7, we can see that promise really take shape. J.C. Ryle, Bishop of Liverpool, I've quoted him before. He wrote this of the, the verses that we're going to look at today. He says, It has been said that there are some passages in Scripture which deserve to be printed in letters of gold. Of such passages, the verse before us form one. They contain one of those wide, full, free invitations to mankind which make the gospel of Christ so eminently the good news of God. In fact, in today's passage, we can see 
three truths about the identity of Jesus that make this the good news of God. And so let me, let me give you those and then we'll read through the passage and work through this together. The first truth is this. Christ is the true fountain of life. Christ is the true fountain of life. The second is Christ is the source of living water. Christ is the source of living water. And then lastly, third, Christ is soon to be glorified. Christ is soon to be glorified. So John chapter 7, I want to read just 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's just take a moment to pray again. Lord, set our minds on things above. Set our minds on the Christ, the one who was and is and is to come the one who is the fountain of life, the source of living water, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father on high. Transform our hearts and our minds today, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we go any further in this, we need to acknowledge that this is an odd thing for Jesus to say and do at this point. It's very significant, but it's also odd. And I want to tell you why. So in order to, to understand that and the significance of this proclamation, we need to do a little bit of work by, by looking at the theological background to these verses. See, John, the apostle, in, in writing this account, he places this pronouncement, verses 37, really verses 37 and 38, with then his explanation in verse 39. He places this in the midst of, of two passages of confrontation and confusion. The verses around these verses are all confrontation and conflict and, and confusion. And so last week, as we worked through the previous verses, we saw this confrontation, this confusion, really verses 25 to 36. And you can see it clearly. It's kind of summarized there in, in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him and the chief priests and Pharisees and officers to arrest him. They were muttering. That's usually not a good sign. There was confrontation, conflict, confusion. And then, of course, that passage ends in those last couple of verses there through verse 36. It, it ends with a series of questions, kind of rhetorical questions that the, that the people are asking, asking that, that distinctly show their confusion. But that's not the end of it, because in the next section, beginning in verse 40 through the rest of the chapter, it's still clearly there. Their confusion, the conflict, the, uh, the confrontation is all still there. Look just at verses 43 and 44. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Conflict and confusion. In fact... The passages, really all of chapter 7, surrounding these three verses, 37 to 39, 
There's all kinds of themes, these similar themes of conflict and, and confusion that are repeated. So verses 12 and then verse 47, they each allege that Jesus is leading people astray. Another theme is verse 19 and then verse 51, which both rightly indicate that the law is authoritative, but they clearly aren't using it properly. Jesus tells them in verse 24 that they are to judge with right judgment. And then interestingly, Nicodemus of all people essentially does the same thing in verse 51. Of course, we already saw the division in the crowd uh, itself, both in verse 31 and 43. I read them a minute ago. And then there's confusion about where he is even from, verse 27, and it comes up again in verse 42. At least twice, maybe three times, depending on how you read it, but at least twice there are attempts to arrest him. Yet in both verse 30 and verse 44... We read that those attempts fail. It says no one laid hands on him. And of course, both before and after this pronouncement here in 37 and 38, there, there are some who openly question whether or not Jesus could actually be the Christ. And in the middle of this, in the middle of this confrontation and, and confusion, and in, in the middle of all of this conflict, Jesus stands up and he cries out this proclamation. So conflict and confusion is in the air. It's all around them. People are, are arguing amongst themselves, talking about him. There's even more symbolism at play here as well, though. We need to take a quick look, look at this if we're, if we're to, to, to understand the significance of what he says in, in verses 37 and, and following. Look at the beginning of verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, if you remember, back in verse 14, so chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus, uh, verse 14 told us, so John told us, that Jesus had been doing his teaching in the temple. And, and so it seems likely from the context of the entire chapter, from this passage, that that, that that is true for these verses as well. They're in the temple. This was important. It was symbolic for several reasons, not the least of which was the fact that, that the temple contained the Holy of Holies. The temple contained the place where the glory of God dwelt with His people. But there was a problem pretty severe problem. Back in Ezekiel, in a, in a vision, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel had seen the glory of God depart from the temple. We see this vision in Ezekiel chapter 10, really all of the chapter, but, but just listen to one verse. Ezekiel 10, 18 says, Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the fact that Jesus is here now in the temple, especially in light of John 1.14, is extremely significant. Do you remember John 1.14? It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Father, is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God is back in the temple. And God's people are mired in, in conflict and confusion. And the glory of God is standing there in the temple. 
Now we know even just from John's gospel, this is not the first time that Jesus had been in the temple. But each time, the response is the same. Conflict and confusion. We saw that back earlier when he had said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, what are you talking about? Of course, John adds later, he was talking about the temple of his own body. Conflict and confusion every time Jesus is in the temple. is what we're seeing here and what we're seeing unfold in John's gospel is his own people not receiving him. But there's some more kind of theological background that we should understand. Even here in John's introduction to what he's about to say in verse 37, he says that Jesus stood up and cried out. And this should show the significance of this. Typically, when rabbis would teach, they would do so sitting down. This was true of Jesus as well. Matthew chapter 5 tells us, seeing the crowds, this is the very first verse of Matthew 5, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and then he goes on to teach what's become known as the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's gospel. But here, Jesus specifically stood up and cried out. If nothing else, this should show you the the urgency of this pronouncement. There's another verse that tells us of Jesus standing where he would normally be sitting. Listen to the end of Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, as he finishes this sermon, he lays out the history of Israel basically, pointing it all at Christ, and as he's finishing up, he, 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 he essentially points his finger at the Jewish leadership, and he says this, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And then Luke, in writing down the account of Acts, says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Jesus was standing there, Stephen tells us. He was standing there because he was about to welcome the the first martyr of Christianity into heaven. He was standing there. You can be sure that Jesus wasn't leaning against the wall. You, You can be sure that Jesus wasn't standing there with his hands in his pockets waiting. He was standing there as Stephen gazed at him, at the glory of God. There's an urgency to the situation. There's an urgency because Stephen is about to lay down his life as Jesus had. 
there's a similar urgency here in John chapter 7. But not only because he's standing, but because he also cried out. He cried out. He proclaimed loudly for all to hear. In John's gospel, when someone cries out, it's usually seen as a, as a very significant announcement or pronouncement. A very significant statement is going to come when it says that so-and-so cried out. Let me give you three quick examples. There's many more, but let me give you three quick examples and, and see if these don't sound like significant statements. In John chapter 1, verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him. This is John the Baptist. Bore witness about him and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. He's pointing out the Christ. In John 12, verses 12 and 13, we read this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The people cried out, Hosanna. And then just a few verses later in John chapter 12, verse 44, Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Pointing again at God the Father. So whatever Jesus is about to say here in chapter 7 is urgent and it is significant. But there's, there's a more immediate context that we should see too. I know I'm giving you a lot of background, but we might miss this if we just look at these verses. So remember, as we've seen over the past several weeks, as we've walked through John chapter 7, the feast in question, the feast that they are there for, is the Feast of Booths. And historically, it's been well established that, that a part of this celebration, this week-long celebration, every day, each day, a, a golden pitcher was filled with water from the pool of Siloam. The high priest would take a, a golden pitcher, fill it with water from the pool, this pitcher of water, then, was carried in a, in a formal processional, uh, led by the high priest. It, but it included all, all kinds of, of the townspeople. They would follow along. The, the, the other priests would walk along. Pilgrims, visitors to the city for the feast, they would walk along, essentially in a parade. And it was brought to the temple. And as they approached the altar in the temple, trumpets would blast. Choirs would be singing from the psalms. And as the priests would surround, they would assemble around the altar. The choir would sing from Psalm 118. And every man, would, every man there, whether they were a priest or a, a pilgrim visiting the city, they would have a little, a little kind of rattle. And they would shake a rattle in one hand. And they'd raise a piece of citrus fruit in the other hand. Remember, this is the harvest season. And so they were praising God making joyful noises, praising God. Everyone would give a shout. They would say three times, they would say, give thanks to the Lord, raising a piece of grapefruit. Give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, give thanks to the Lord. And then the high priest would pour out the water as a, as a drink offering to the Lord. They did this to remind the people of two things. First of of God's provision of, of water while they were wandering in the wilderness. 
in the desert during the time of the Exodus, but also as a reminder of God's promise that he would pour out his spirit in the last days. God had promised uh, uh, this in several places in the Old Testament. So, for example, he said through the prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah 44, verse 3, he says, For I will pour uh, water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. He says this in other places, too, that he will pour out his spirit in these last days. Joel and, and other places. So with all of that in mind, with all of that, that picture of the, the pomp and circumstance of the situation. Let's now consider Jesus' words in verse 37, where he claims to be the true fountain of life. This is Christ, the true fountain of life. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is an invitation. It's an invitation. In a moment that's hard to understand, that's hard to, to fathom, in the midst of all this pomp and circumstance, all of this symbolism and, and ceremony, God himself stood to address his people, inviting them to come to him. God himself, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This isn't merely part of a speech. Jesus didn't say these words in the, in the midst of a longer teaching or as the, as the climax of one of his sermons. It seems to come from out of the blue. This can only be described really as the language of the prophets of God. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. But this time, the prophet didn't need to say, thus saith the Lord. The Lord simply saith it. The prophet was the word of God become flesh. And all of this feast, all of this festival, all of this ceremony, all of this symbolism, all of it culminating in, the, in as John says, the, the last great day, it all belonged to him. And he's there, he's, he's there saying, here I am, I'm right here. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Think of the fulfillment of prophecy. Going back to the, the prophet Ezekiel for just a moment. Ezekiel foresaw living waters flowing from the temple. Listen to Ezekiel 47. I'm going to read just verses 1 and 9. Ezekiel 47, 1 says, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. And water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. And then verse 9 says, And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so everything will live where this river goes. Living water. Living water. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, is an invitation to drink from that living water. It says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And here, 
It is Jesus himself who announces that he is the true fountain of life. Jesus is the true fountain of life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And with that in mind, that Jesus is the true fountain of life, listen with new ears to the richness of Isaiah chapter 12. In fact, turn to Isaiah chapter 12. We read this a couple of weeks ago in our service. The fact that Jesus is the true fountain of life See if this doesn't stand out even more. Isaiah 12, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord. For though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Great in your midst is Jesus Christ who is the true fountain of of life. If anyone thirsts, he says, let him come to me and drink. Christ is the true fountain of life. If you remember back in chapter 2, Jesus proclaimed himself to be the true temple. In chapter 3 of John, he's the the true bronze serpent to be lifted up. In chapter 6, he's the bread of life, the manna from heaven. Here, he's the true fountain of life. And and all of this will continue all through John's gospel until we finally see that he's even the true sacrificial lamb. But not only is this an announcement, it it is also, and especially more urgently, an invitation. This is not merely a statement of fact. Christ is the true fountain of life. It is an invitation to drink from that fountain. This is an unexpected invitation, too. It's unexpected. Jesus had come quietly into the city, a city that was almost entirely against him, whose leaders were actively looking for ways to kill him, and yet here he is, directing an invitation at a, at a particular people, those who thirst. Spurgeon has a great quote on this. He said, Whereas his custom was to sit and teach the people who gathered in a ring around him, on this closing day he now sought a prominent place. And there he stood, conspicuous before them all. Behold, he stands and pleads. I think I see the master's face beaming with holy affection and his eyes streaming with tears as he pleads as for his life with the throng which is soon to melt away. But here's the thing. He's pleading not for his life, He's pleading for their lives. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is an invitation for Jesus to meet their deepest needs, their deepest longings, their their deepest thirsts. 
Again, J.C. Ryle. He said, The saints of God in every age have been men and women who drank of this fountain by faith and were relieved. They felt their guilt and emptiness and thirsted for deliverance. They heard of a, a full supply of pardon, mercy, and grace in Christ crucified for all penitent believers. They believed the good news and acted upon it. Jesus promises to everyone who thirsts, let him freely take from me everything that his soul wants. Mercy, grace, pardon, peace, strength. For I am the true fountain of life, he says. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Christ is the true fountain of life. Verse 38. Jesus continues and says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not only is Christ the true fountain of life, but Christ is also the source of living water. And Christ is the source of living water. He makes this pronouncement as he offers this invitation. Jesus is making an important connection between himself and the truth of Scripture. So, so to say his statement another way, to say what he says in a different way, rivers of living water are given specifically to those whom he says, believe in me. Those who believe in me. Jesus is saying that a believer is a believer because he believes trusts, he hopes in him as he, Jesus, is revealed in Scripture. Not a Jesus of our own making. This is, this is especially true at Christmas time when we, we often completely water down the message of the gospel and reduce it to just another Christmas present. Just something you could have bought for yourself anyway. Something that you're going to unwrap and forget about in a month. Or you're going to be more interested in the box. Jesus isn't just a Christmas present. When Jesus says here, as the scripture has said, he's rooting this promise. This promise of new life. This promise of drinking from the living waters. He's rooting all of this promise in the other promises of God. Specifically in, in the Old Testament. Now he, He's not quoting a specific passage here. Sometimes we look for the, where he said this or where he's quoting this from. He's not quoting a specific passage. Instead, he's, he's referring to the big picture of the, of the prophecies of Jesus throughout the scriptures. Throughout the Old Testament specifically. So let me give you one example. In the book of Nehemiah, when the people of God, when the people of Israel are repentant and they're returning to Jerusalem after the exile and they're rebuilding the wall, in chapters 8 and 9, they assemble and Ezra, the priest, he reads the law in preparation actually for this very feast. And that's because they're obeying the law, which is they're told to read the law before they uh, participate in the Feast of Booths. And so they're doing that. And they acknowledge in verse 20 of chapter 9, Nehemiah 9, 20, they acknowledge God's provision. So it says this, You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. And Jesus is here proclaiming that he's the ultimate fulfillment of that. 
That yes, that was true for the people who wandered in the desert, but Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that. Or consider Revelation chapter 21, verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus is the source of living water. Again, Isaiah chapter 12, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I will not be afraid, for the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Jesus Christ is the source of living water. He, he is the well of salvation. And then John gives us his explanation, the meaning uh, behind these significant statements when he says in verse 39, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. The third truth that we see about Christ here is Christ is soon to be glorified. John explains that the river of life will, as Jesus said even to the Samaritan woman back in chapter 4, verse 14, it will become in him a, a spring of water welling up to eternal life. That's what the river of life does. That's what salvation is. And the river of life is actually the indwelling Spirit of God. So when Jesus speaks of, of living water, yes, he's speaking of salvation, but he's speaking also of, of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, on this point, we could go down a very long road. Um, we don't have time to do that today. We could investigate the gift of the Holy Spirit, but I don't think that's the intention of John here. Remember, John is writing this. He's, he's writing these words after the resurrection. He's actually writing these words after Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when God poured out his Spirit on his people. So suffice it to say this. The gift of the Holy Spirit changed the entire course of history. The gift of the Holy Spirit changed the entire course of history. The Holy Spirit enables men to preach the gospel despite the risk of persecution. He enabled the scriptures to be written, to be preserved, to be translated. He actually guided the pens of the men writing, Peter tells us. They were carried along in the Spirit. He gave words to believers to say as they went through all the earth preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And he intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And how this all ties together is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He's the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it in glory. See, what John is doing here is showing us that the, the fulfillment of Jesus' promise of living water in the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost in chapter 2, that's when it was fulfilled, when God poured out His Spirit on His people. But make no mistake, this passage is about God's salvation of sinners. Drinking from the well of salvation involves being filled with the Spirit of God. And through all of this, John is pointing us to the cross, 
when he is glorified. He says, because Jesus is not yet glorified. He's pointing us to the cross. Calvary comes before Pentecost. The Spirit has not yet been given. Jesus is not yet glorified. And the cross is glory, not shame. The cross is glory, not shame. Because when it comes to Jesus, the cross didn't simply lead to death and shame. It leads to victory and resurrection. It leads to ascension and glory where he now sits at God's right hand in glory. And here in John chapter 7, Christ is soon to be glorified. And he stands in his temple and he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The glory of God standing in the temple, calling his people to come to him. Because soon he's going to be glorified. Roughly six months from this moment, Jesus will go to the cross. And in just a short time after that, he will ascend in glory. He's not yet been glorified here, but he is soon to be. And so Jesus pleads with his people, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. Father, as we read these words, as we try and put all of this together, all of this information, the background, the theological background, the the religious background of what the people around Jesus would have seen as he stepped up and said these things, Lord, let none of that distract us from the proclamation that Jesus makes, the truth that still stands, that if anyone thirsts, we may come to him and be satisfied. We may drink and out of our heart will flow rivers of living water. Father, we pray that we would understand these things and that when we stand in glory before our Savior, that he will be able to welcome us into his arms to sit at his table because of his death because of his resurrection and his ascension in glory we pray these things in Jesus name amen